Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. Uh, This week we've wrapped up week one of our 40 Days for Fullness. We are looking at hunger and thirst. If you're on the recordings, you got to spend the week with Bonnie Joslin. She did a great job uh, doing her recordings and and preparing the devotionals for the day. Um, And and then today we're shifting our focus to the new theme. So it's the start of a new week. And and the new theme this week is going to be the Word of God. So I I just wonder... How many of you have ever walked through something in life or something happened and and it caused you to ask the question, why? Why are things this way? Or why does this keep happening to me? Or or why do I keep getting myself into these situations? Um, You know, if you have a paradigm in in your mind that involves uh, the, the idea that there's this loving, benevolent creator who who's defined by self-giving, self-sacrificing love, that he cares deeply for his creation, then sometimes when that question why comes out, it's, it's directed at him. Like you've, you sense some injustice in the world or some injustice in your own situation. You're saying, God, why would you let this happen? There's a number of places in Scripture where, where people are asking God questions like, God, why is it that the wicked prosper? Or why do bad things happen to good people? Or why do good things seem to be happening to bad people all the time? Job Job actually has a point where he's like, God, why do the wicked prosper? Job was a righteous man who suffered uh, a lot of hardship in his life. He's like, it's like, why do the wicked prosper? Their bulls never cease to mate. <laughs> he's like, What's up with that? The bulls, they never fail to mate. They, they nail it every time. And, you know, here's Job probably with his impotent bulls thinking like, what is wrong with this picture? God, something. If the, if the creator of all the world is just, I just want my bulls to get in there and do their thing and do it right. I, I do think that typically when we're asking these questions, or especially when we're directing these questions to God, um, we're seeking the answer to the why of our questions. It, it does not seem that God explains that why in, in sufficient detail for us. I mean, we don't really see it in Scripture. God doesn't usually come and meet you and say, Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Let me lay it all out for you and explain every little bit of, of what I'm doing or why things are happening the way they are. But there is this point in Deuteronomy chapter 8 where uh, where Moses talks about what Israel has gone through and then talks about the why for them. And, and because we just don't get to experience that very often, I thought it would be a fun story to look at today. Um, so, But before you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8, let me, let me just set the stage for you with what's going on. So once upon a time, a long time ago, in a land far, far away, the, the Israelites were out in the wilderness, and they were wandering around as a nomadic people led out there by God, and they were very, very hungry. 
And because they were so hungry, they complained that they didn't have anything to eat. And so Moses went to God and God told Moses that in the morning he would rain down bread from heaven for them to eat. And the next morning the Israelites woke up and there was a light dew all across the ground in the wilderness. But then when the dew dried out, it left behind these thin, flaky, light-colored light-colored wafer-like residue. And so the people went out and they gathered it and they ate it. They claimed that it tasted like a honey wafer and then they called it manna. And this was a daily miracle. And so God commanded them that each day the manna would be out there on the ground and each day they would go out and they would gather just enough for that day, not gather any extra. But some of the people didn't listen to God's instructions. And they went out and gathered extra manna. Because just because it's here today doesn't mean it's going to be here tomorrow. And the people who gathered extra manna found that the next day it had totally rotted and was full of maggots. But then on the day before the Sabbath, so the Israelites took every Saturday as a day of rest and reflection. It was commanded by God to take a day of rest and reflection, enjoying God's goodness and his provision. The day before the day of rest, they were commanded to go out and collect twice as much manna as they needed for the day. So that on the Sabbath day, they wouldn't have to go out and work and collect manna. They'd have it all right there in the jar, ready to eat. And so on that day, they collected a double portion. And this time, it didn't spoil it. And then the nation of Israel ate like this for 40 years years. In the book of Deuteronomy, as Israel's wilderness wandering time is is winding down, Moses gathers this new generation of Israelites. So Israel was led out in the desert by God, provided for by God, told to go into the promised land, but because of their disobedience and not trusting the Lord, they ended up not being able to go into the promised land. And a whole generation ends up perishing while they're wandering around in the desert. And so as that generation has now passed and there's a new generation that was growing up in the desert, eating manna every day, this new generation of Israelites is gathered together and Moses kind of sits them all down and, and has an opportunity at the beginning of Deuteronomy to reteach them the ways of God, to talk about everything that's happened that's led up to this day, to talk about their relationship with the Lord and how they're God's chosen people for a specific purpose and what all of this means. And in chapter 8, he talks about the manna miracle, and then he talks about why God did this, why it is that God would do this unique miracle in providing food for these people. So you can turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and and we can read all of this together. Verse 3 says, He, being God, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God did this unique thing. He took them out of the wilderness, put them in a place where they would hunger and need him. And then he provided manna for them to teach them. Why did he do it? Because he's teaching them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
So imagine that you've spent 40 years or up to 40 years growing up in the wilderness. It's been hard. It's been difficult and a wandering life. And you're wondering to yourself from time to time, why is life like this? Why is it that the people of God are wandering around in a wilderness all the time? You maybe see the people around you that have settled into their lands and are building cities and are enjoying the, you know, the comforts of a non-nomadic life. And you're thinking to yourself, why is it that God has us doing this? And then Moses says these words, and maybe the first thing that stands out to you is, oh, that's right. God is doing this to humble you. He says, God humbled you. Throughout Scripture, we're reminded that God loves to work in humble people's lives because humble people listen. Prideful people tend to already know it all. Prideful people tend to think that they're already doing everything right. And there's something about this life that God has invited Israel to live that has constant reminders for them to to be humble or has constant humbling circumstances about it where they, they can't help but be a humble people who are listening to an attentive God. He humbled you, and he, he caused you to hunger, and then he fed you with manna. Something about the, ways, the way that God is wanting to relate to Israel is teaching them this foundational lesson. That God has designed a world where when you experience any kind of hunger, any kind of deficit, that he is a God who is reliable to fill those appetites for him. And if you live enough of your life experiencing that, the, the hunger for different things, and then God filling that hunger for things, and you, you begin to see him as the source to fulfill the hungers in your life. We kind of talked about this a lot this last week as we've been looking at the principle of hunger and spiritual hunger, this idea that if you want to find true satisfaction, you learn to look to God as the source to fill your hunger rather than the substitutes. So every day that they're getting up and eating this manna is a reminder to them, God is the one who fulfills my appetites in the right way. Moses said to them, you guys ate this manna that neither you or your ancestors had ever known. And as far as, as we know, this thing didn't show up for other people either. It's not as if you can go somewhere now and collect something to eat after the dew dries out. I mean, the dew dries out in my backyard and there's nothing to eat there. It's just time to cut the grass. So he says, I did this miracle. I did this brand new thing. I did something unique here. I gave you an opportunity to live with me through circumstances that were different than anyone else had ever lived through. You know, and he's God. He could have provided for them food in, in any way. In fact, there are, there are times that he sent uh, quail into the camp and they, you know, they wanted meat, right? The manna was enough. They wanted meat too. And, and the, the birds would come and they'd eat the birds, which... That uh, does not sound appetizing to me, but I've just, I've never been that hungry. Um, but he provides for them in this unique way. He does this thing that involves their food just appearing on the ground around them every morning. Why does he do it this way? 
Moses says, it was to teach you. He did this because he wanted to teach you. We were talking in our, in our discussion group for the 40 days of fullness this week. We were talking about the word uh, discipline because that shows up in scripture a lot. In fact, it shows up in just a few verses. We'll get, we'll get there in a minute. But the idea of, of discipline as understanding it in the larger context of, of education, right? Or of learning or teaching rather than like the, the part of it that is punishment. It's like Moses is saying, this has all happened in this way for your educational benefit, for your enrichment. This is good for you. I, I was uh, grabbing a few groceries at Winco yesterday. Every good story in our community starts this way, right? I was grabbing a few groceries at Winco, and, uh, and from across the grocery store, someone shouts out, Hey, Mr. Dieter, Mr. Dieter. And most of you know my twin brother teaches in the Kelso School District, and so I, I get this a lot when I go to grocery stores, and, and I look, and there's a, a, you know, I don't know, 15, 16-year-old come running over, and, and, I, and I recognize him, and, and he says, oh, you're his brother, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm his brother, but, you know, it's good to see you. How you doing? And, and, and so uh, he, he was a bit of a troublemaker in middle school, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> it's funny who's, like, excited to see you, the people you would think would never... They would be like, if anything, I thought you would spend the rest of your life avoiding me in grocery stores because our, our interactions at school haven't been the most positive. But and he seemed really happy to see me. And he tells me, yeah, he's doing like a, uh, you know, like a, a KVA virtual school or something. But he's like, I, I really, it seems like I probably should uh, finish school, um, which is probably a better option for him because he was hardly ever there in middle school. But I, I want to do this because it seems like I should graduate. I'm like, yeah. You probably should. Like, that sounds like a really good idea. Um, so I have this positive interaction with him. I'm like, man, I really hope I really hope he's making good choices and doing well. I'm glad to hear he's still going to school. And, and then I'm walking out of Winco, and he's being taken back in there with the police and a loft prevention officer who's got like, a, you know, a, a, a few like baked goods. And I'm I'm thinking to myself like, oh, this is. This is a learning opportunity for him, right? This is God. Uh, the, the thing that would be worse than that is if he just constantly got away with stealing stuff. And so discipline, it can, it can be punishment, but it's always meant to be so. That's just the tip of the iceberg, right? Like they say that 90% of the iceberg is underwater. So we say the tip of the iceberg. We mean you're only getting a small part of it. Discipline is so much bigger and so much broader than that moment that you're being punished for something that you're doing wrong. This verse was, uh, you know, Moses says that, uh, you know, man is not going to live by, by bread alone, uh, but, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. What is it that God's trying to teach you people through doing all of this thing, this morning exercise of going and gathering? He's trying to teach you that you don't live by bread alone. You don't live by the thing that you're gathering every day, but you are living by every word that comes out of God's mouth. I think a lot of times when we read the word, word of God or word that comes out of God's mouth in scripture, we tend to think of the scriptures. We're like, yeah, the scriptures. Uh, but that's just another tip of the iceberg thing. That's, that's a part of it, but that's not the full piece. Think about it this way. When Moses wrote these words, 
and said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth. He, 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 most of the Bible hadn't even been written yet. He's talking about something more and greater than just the words that God spoke that were recorded. He's talking about something far grander than all of that. And, and, and these Hebrews that were wandering around in the wilderness together, they understood the word of God as something far more relational and far more grounded in their daily reality than just the Bible. The man is there showing up in camp every day. Every day that they wake up, the man is there. There's something else that's there every day as well. There was a tent in the middle of their camp. They moved around, but they had a tent. It's called the tabernacle or the, the tent of meeting. It was this place in the middle of the camp that was God's tent. This is the tent where God lives. And this crazy thing happened where over the tent every day, there was a, a cloud or, or a pillar of smoke, depending on how you want to interpret it. And then by night, there was a pillar of fire over this tent. And that, that let everybody know God's hanging out in the tent. And, and, and the manifestation, the visible presence of God's God there in the middle of their camp was a reminder to these people that God's desire for humanity was to dwell in their midst, to be with them. And so for them, each day is, is an object lesson as the camp is, is all around the tent. Each day is an object lesson that here in the wilderness, we survive by God's presence here in our midst providing for us. Each day we are living by the words that are coming out of God's mouth. Of course, their idea of creation from the Genesis account is that God spoke and things were created. And so when things appeared like manna on the ground, in their minds, that's because God spoke and it was there. Every day, their reality is God is living in our midst and we are surviving by the words that come out of his mouth. And, and when the people have a question, or when the people sin, or, or when the people are, are in need, Moses doesn't thumb through the four and a half books that he'd already written to try to pick out a few verses to know what to do. He goes right to the tent of meeting, and he's on his face before the Lord, and he talks to God face to face. And God gives him instructions. There, there's even this incident recorded in the book of Numbers where the Israelites come asking questions about what happened in the book of Leviticus. How are we supposed to do these things? And, and Moses goes to the Lord to talk to God about it. Jesus said to the Pharisees in the New Testament, you guys are searching the scriptures, thinking that in there is the place you have life. You don't know that the, the scriptures and the prophets, the whole thing testifies to me. You need to come to me to have life. We live by every word that comes from God's mouth. And the scriptures are the tip of the iceberg. They're, they're a part of it, a huge important part of it. But we are people who walk with, are called to walk with God and have him living in our midst. Not people who just have our, our favorite book that we all, this is not a book club. This is a family built around the person of Jesus Christ. The book of Numbers says that whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites would set out 
And wherever the cloud settled, that's where they would set up camp all around the cloud. The idea being that wherever God's going, we're going with him. Wherever he settles, he's going to be in our midst. And then the account continues and says, At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they camped. And you think about your life, and you compare it to their life in the wilderness, and you think, what a unique experience these people had. What a miraculous time they lived in. This is a glimpse for us of how God longs to dwell with his people. They're living by every word that comes out of his mouth. And, and, and so what does it mean to walk with God in this way? Maybe more importantly, what does, what's the result? What does a life look like when people will live their lives with God in the center of it, living by every word that comes out of his mouth? Moses continues in verse 4. He says, uh, this is back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 4. He says, your clothes didn't wear out. And your feet did not swell during those 40 years. I don't know how many of you have ever dealt with foot pain, but, you know, the the last part of my 30s and into my 40s, I have intermittent plantar fasciitis. So my feet just hurt. It's hard to do anything when your feet hurt. I'm like, I don't know. I would maybe trade my modern life with all of its comforts for just 40 years of my feet not swelling. That sounds like a pretty desirable thing. But these little things that Moses pointed out aren't just so that we can, you know, deduce the wonders of of their clothes and their feet, but it's pointing to this idea that, that what we are seeing, who Moses is talking to right now, is a generation who grew up with living a life that was defined by things not decaying around them like things normally would. Their bodies didn't break down the way that they usually would. Their clothes didn't decay the way that they usually would. This is the, this is the new generation in Israel, the old generation that was rebellious and turned away from God. They, 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 they perished in the desert. And we're at a point now where this is Moses talking to the new generation, but there are two people left over from the old generation who made it through. It was Joshua and Caleb. Uh, there was a situation where they're on the border of the promised land, and Moses sends 12 spies in, and and only two of the 12 spies came back with a report saying, hey, it's going to be tough, but it's a good land. God's led us here. Let's go get it. The other 10 spies were like, we'll never make it. And that was where that generation listened to the other 10 spies and said, we're not going into the promised land. We're going to go back to Egypt or something like that. And, uh, and so they ended up not. They, they ended up doing exactly what they said they would do. <laughs> they didn't go into the promised land. But Joshua and Caleb, the two faithful spies, uh, they survive all the way through. And there's a story in, in the book of Joshua, chapter 14, where uh, this is after Israel's made it into the land. They've done some preliminary conquering. They've begun to settle a little bit. And they're beginning to uh, portion out where everybody's going to live. And, and Caleb comes to Joshua. He's 85 years old at this point. Um, I don't know who the oldest person is in the room, but I don't think anyone here is 85. But he, he comes to Joshua, who's now leading the Lord's people. And he says to him, look, when I was 40, we spied out this land together. And, uh, and you know, we were faithful. And, and because we were faithful, God promised he would keep me alive. 
and let me go into the promised land. And now here I am, I'm 85, and I don't feel a day over 40. Which, when you're 40, doesn't sound great, but I'm sure when you're 85, you would kill for, you'd kill for 40. And he says, look, I'm just as ready at 85 to go and conquer the land as I was, you know, when I was a young man. And, and furthermore, Joshua, you promised me this land in this hill country that I know it has all these fortified cities, and I know the people there are like the giants. They're the big people. They're the people we should be the most afraid of. But he says, Joshua, give me permission to go up into the land, uh, up into the hilly land, and to take on those fortified cities and to conquer the giants. I'm ready to go. I'm 85. I would imagine uh, Joshua sees on his calendar, okay, meeting with Caleb. Man, he is getting up there. He's probably thinking, all right, Caleb's going to show up and give me his resignation papers. He's ready to retire from whatever his position is. But because Caleb has lived his life with God in the center of the camp, and because God's presence has this remarkable preserving effect on us, Caleb's ready to go fight his greatest battles when he's 85 years old. God's sustaining power was unique when he was living in the center of Israel's camp. If you do an in-depth study of the literary structure describing Israel's camp in, in the Torah, you begin to, to view that in, in, uh, with perspective of the, the totality of Scripture and particularly the Genesis account. What you begin to pull out of that is that God has used this nation of Israel to create for himself a little mobile garden of Eden. A little mobile place where God dwells in the midst of the people. And the people are living a life where, it, like in a well-tended-to garden, their needs are taken care of. His presence at the center and the nation around it being sustained by His goodness. Things being drawn into order by His law and His teaching, by His discipline. And things being preserved through His power. This is a reminder to me that despite the waywardness of humanity, God has not given up on his original intention for humanity. So Moses is here before this new generation. He's reminding them of what they've been through. He's saying, let me help you understand your reality. Verse 5, he says, So know in your hearts that as a man disciplines his son, so your God disciplines you. There's that triggering word for us again, discipline. It's the Hebrew word, yaser. He says, know in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, God disciplines you. Some translations there say chastises. I've been chastised a few times in my life. It wasn't pleasant. Um, it, it, uh, some, you know, the, the idea, the word at times carries the connotation of like being struck with blows, Right? And I think one of our like revulsions to that is the idea of this ancient shepherd smacking his son and saying, that's not how you shear a sheep. Come on, get it right. We think of discipline as punishment, which that's part of it. But this again, this is just, it's just the tip 
of the iceberg. Most of you who are parents know that punishment is a part of teaching your kids, but um, but it's a very small part. I mean, if your relationship with your kids is defined by how often you're having to punish them, like something is off, right? There's so much more to that teaching, mentoring, loving, providing relationship. This same word, yaser, it's, it's oftentimes translated to teach or to instruct or to correct. We use different words to talk about those things, but Hebrew used the same word. It was all sort of part of the whole parcel. Sorry, I lost my place. Oh, so for context, this, of course, is written to uh, a primitive society. Uh, how things worked back then, so often children would, uh, a parent would have a certain role they filled in society. Shepherd's a good one, right? And, and children whose parents were shepherds or dad was a shepherd would learn to be a shepherd. And, and the way you did that was by, from a very young age, going and working alongside your, your father, doing what they did, or, or working alongside your mother and learning the different things that she was doing to, to provide for the family. Super common for children to grow up and then fill their parents' role in society. And God says to the nation of Israel, like that, like a father disciplines his son, I am inviting Israel to go to work with me, to come alongside me, to do the things that I do. I'm a good God. I'm a benevolent creator. I'm filling the world with goodness. Come along, come to work with me and fill the world with goodness. Do what I do. And there's times that you're going to try and fail and there's times that your helping is going to slow everything down. As far as I'm concerned, I have, I have really, really failed at times to teach my kids things because it takes a lot longer to have somebody do something than, who's not already an expert in it. And they've, they've been robbed of opportunities to learn certain skills because I was not a patient teacher. God is a patient teacher. He's not the shepherd smacking the kids saying, this is how you shear a sheep. He's the shepherd coming along, handing the sheep shears or whatever they used back then to the, to the child and saying, oh, that's pretty good. Let's try doing this. He's maybe putting his hands on the child's hands and they're shearing to get, I, this shows I know nothing about shearing sheep. Um, but you get the picture, right? It's an active relationship. It's, it's a patient and loving teacher. That's not to say that there's not going to be a stern conversation if he comes out one day and one of the sheep's been butchered and he's like, were you trying to shear sheep? You're not ready for that yet. Like, we need to sort this out. But that is just part of it. And that's not the goal of it, right? The goal of it is that we continue to do this thing and, and at some point, I pass this work on to you. And someday, your excellence at this work is going to at least in the human life cycle, it's going to carry me into retirement, right? Like, I'm going to be so glad to be the guy who's sitting in the tent and you just come in every now and then with your questions, needing a little help, needing to tap into that wisdom of the ages about 
how to shear the sheep or weave or, you know, whatever else they did to live back then. Um, Moses is saying to Israel, in this Eden that God has invited us to live in around him, the Lord is in your, your midst. In this place, you are to rely on his daily presence, on his daily instruction. You're to know that he is walking with you and teaching you each and every day, just like you're walking with and teaching your own children. The reason that you get to be the people who this is your story, God's tent, presence in the middle of the tent, or tent in the middle of the camp, presence in the middle of the people, the, the manna showing up on the ground around you, the reason that you've, the reason that this has all happened to you is because God is showing humanity what it means to walk with him. Like a father walks with his children or a mother walks with her children. These stories are preserved then for us as well to help shape our understanding of God's desire for us. I really believe that he hasn't given up on the garden dream, the garden vision yet, and that his spirit is constantly working in our lives to draw us. He, he longs to live to, for us to live in a place where God is in the center of our lives. His presence is transforming our lives. Your life is this little portable Eden that goes around with you. A place where things are as they should be. You might not go out to gather honey wafers from the ground every morning. But he is giving each of us our daily bread. You might not see the cloud or the, the pillar of fire. But he has sent his spirit to dwell in your hearts. To be with you. To be in you. Oh, just this connection, right? The Acts chapter 2. The Spirit shows up. There's tongues of fire, right? Tongues of fire. What's that supposed to make you think of? The fire above the tabernacle. It's like, God's here. God is here in our midst. And God has sent His Spirit to, to witness to your spirit. You are a child of God. You have the presence of God with you. You have the Holy Spirit. He's your teacher. If you want to phrase it in a more offensive way, He's your disciplinarian, right? <laughs> He's your teacher. He's there to guide you. He's, get, he's perver, preserved his scriptures for you. To give you guidance. To help you to walk in wisdom. To help you understand this thing that he is doing. And, and really, you, it all boils down to you are meant to see yourself walking hand in hand with him each and every day. Living your life by every word that comes out of his mouth. We have some discussion questions, but we'll pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for this incredible thing you have invited us into. I think it all begins with you being in the center and us living by the words that come out of your mouth. And so we pray that you would help us to, uh, to surrender that center space to you in our lives. And, uh, and we pray that you would open our ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen.